0: Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message.
1: take the hand of the person next to you to pray with them and if you're by yourself you take the hand of Jesus. First would you take a moment just to pray for this person whatever the Lord puts on your heart. For those who are here who are hurting Lord that you would bring healing and comfort to them today. For those who are searching for you that you would open their eyes that they might see you more clearly for the broken hearted that you would bring healing and wholeness to them <coughs> to those who are longing to see you in a new way that they want to see you pour out your spirit in their lives that today they would see you anew for those who are overflowing with joy that their joy would be complete by sharing it with others by encouraging others for any person here with a stronghold any place where satan has a grip upon their lives that it would be broken in the name of jesus and by the shed blood of jesus any person who might be watching online or listening on radio that In this moment, you would surrender your life to Christ. Recognize that there is no hope apart from him. Yet when you embrace him, when you ask him to come into your life, he transforms everything. Gives you a whole new life, a fresh perspective. Hope anew and a new life itself. Lord, we do come to you this morning and ask for your spirit to speak to us, that all of us would hear from you. Because we've come here not to hear from a human, but to encounter you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've been saying that this is a very, very critical time in the history of this country. And I am not saying that with regard to elections or economic events or any other thing of that nature. I'm talking from a spiritual perspective. That for a long period of time, we have as a nation slowly, sometimes intentionally, stepped away from walking with God And we have sought after the world. We have yearned to embrace the world more and more. And so I have said that God is calling the church to be the true church. And I've been thinking about this a lot more. In fact, I think he is calling what I would refer to as the remnant church. Because there is a lot of the church in this country, that which we call church from an organizational standpoint, that has long since abandoned a true walk with him that has long since abandoned truth itself and has so sought after the world that there is very little embrace of god himself but yet i believe always whether you're talking about the nation of israel and a remnant that he preserved after they had been conquered things of that nature or in the modern world, wherever the church is suffering in some way, there's always a remnant of the true church. There are always those individuals who hunger and thirst for righteousness who want to love the Lord with all of their heart, their soul, and their mind. Now, if I were to ask you honestly, do you love the Lord with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind? Do you know what my answer would be? I don't know. That is my goal. That's my desire. I think I love God, but I often say to him, show me where I don't. So I want to love him with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind. And I think many of you do as well. And it's those people that I would call the remnant church who really want to know him. And I believe at this critical juncture, God is calling the remnant church to be the true church. That's why I've been doing this series about what is the true church that maybe many of us have never seen it, maybe never collectively. I've seen the true church in individuals, individuals who lived out a life of godliness, and it was so distinct and so impactful upon others but God is calling us to be the true church and so I've said over the last few weeks that that it is necessary that we recognize that our sin of loving the world and the things of the world is against God and God himself that it's one thing to be repentant when you are caught in your sin and you're concerned about the ramifications or you're remorseful that you hurt somebody but it's another thing to recognize that your sin is against God this is why we looked at the life of King David a couple weeks ago where he had sinned against so many different people and yet when confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan he said I have sinned against the Lord he realized that ultimately his sin was against God and so all of us, if we are the true church, needs to come to this place of recognizing that our sin is against him and we need to seek him in a new and fresh way. And so last week I was talking about having a pure heart. Because it's an interesting thing that when we look at the scripture about King David, two times, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament here in Acts, David is referred to as a person who is after god's own heart you know that's a very special statement about him a wonderful statement about him it's a great statement about anybody a person who is after god who seeks after him wants to know his heart that this is such a good thing yet we realize that david was a man who did not have a pure heart You see, and that's what I was talking about last week, the importance of the church, that is you and I individually having pure hearts. This is why when I asked the Lord about, well, do I love him? And I say, I don't know. I'm asking him to reveal a part of my heart that is impure that I do not see. Because in David's case, it was clear that a part of his heart was not pure because he lusted after Bathsheba he walked in pride in trying to cover up his sin and he there was something in his heart that was very very wicked with regard to the respect for human life that he was willing to take life somebody else's life in order to cover his own sin that is a very very dark and murderous part of his heart and so david was a person who was double minded And so we looked at the scripture last week here in James where it says, Come near to the Lord, purify your hearts, don't be double-minded. And for all of us, for the true church right now, the call is for us to purify our hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to sift us and work through us to make us the people that he wants us to be. See, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that the church in this country will arise in a way that I've never seen before that it will be a true and honest church, turn away from the world, be impactful in the culture. See, I was thinking about this. I believe if you study the history of this country, you'll find that the church was much more influential several decades ago, a hundred years ago, than it is now. In fact, if you look at, say, the, the 1700s, the 1800s, the church was the central institution of society. That government was very small relative to now. That educational institutions were very small relative to now. In some cases, they were one room schoolhouses or the school was in the church building. That the central meeting place, the central social place, the central place for instruction and morality was the church itself. And literally, there was a church on every corner. It's interesting if you look around just in our region and how many churches there are and then go and look on at the dates in which they were founded. I did a wedding yesterday in a church up in Bristol and uh, over on the cornerstone of one part of the building it said something like founded in 1856 and the building was erected in 1882 or something like that. The church was the cornerstone of society. But if you look at what are the major institutions that God has ordained, they are, first of all, the institution of the family, secondly, the institution of the church, and third, the institution of government. And family has the primary responsibility for raising up each generation and instructing the next generation in what it means to walk with God. The church has the responsibility to maintain truth and to facilitate that because the church is a collective of families. The only job that government really has that is ordained by God is to restrain evil. We ask government to do many things. Essentially, we ask government often to be God. But the only biblical responsibility of government is to restrain evil, and there's some people foolish enough in our modern society to think that they should stop trying to do that. But that is the responsibility of government. But you see, historically, the church was so influential. But now look at where we are right now. How influential in society is the church? Well, minimally. The church has been marginalized, pushed from the public square. And not without cooperation from the church. In other words, the church has failed to stand. That's why I'm saying the church has been in retreat now for several decades. Marching out of the public square, allowing many other influences to dominate and to be happy with it. And the reason the church has been happy with it is because we've been too concerned about seeking after comfort and pleasure and success and wealth in the world rather than seeking after God. So we compromise with the world because we want to know the world and love the world rather than love God. And so if you think about what are the most influential institutions in society today, the church is certainly not primary in that regard. Government is far more influential than it's been at any point in the history of this nation. What about families? Families in large measure are less influential There's so many young people that have lived through very, very difficult circumstances. I've met young people who were born addicts because their mother was an addict, who never knew their father, who have bounced from one caretaker to another because they they never had a father or mother who was out of jail long enough to take care of them, and who are trying to figure out how to live in this world. You see, there are lots of examples of that. If, if you, by the way, are a young person who comes from a stable family, you are now an exception, not a normal part of society. And you see, so families have been less influential. The church has been less influential. Government has become far more influential. But the most influential institution, it's not even an institution, it's a category of influence in the world today, is the media whether you're talking to entertainment media, news media, online media, any of those things. It's the most influential part of society. And how much coming from there is godly? Very little. Some. And you see, it is the responsibility of the true church to arise in the day in which we live To engage the culture, not to love the culture, that is to love the world, but to love the culture through the Spirit of God into understanding the answer to life is not found in the social media world. The answer to life is not found in entertainment. It's found in Christ. So you can find lots of temporary diversions in this world, many of them that will give you satisfaction for a brief period of time. But only Christ fulfills for a lifetime and eternally. And so, see, the church has largely been double-minded, and God is calling the church to be a true church. Now, in fact, we talked last week that he has purified us, The scripture that says, it's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, that is, all believers have been purified, past tense, by him. But he does not override our will, and we have a responsibility to take charge in purifying ourselves, making choices that engage the fact that we are new creations in him, and we can walk with him as a new creation in Christ. And where I ended last week was with this scripture that's so important because the pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. You see there are a lot of people in this world who say well if God reveals himself to me then I'll talk with him. It doesn't work that way. Or if God blesses me with the things that I'm asking for and he proves that he's real then then I'll accept him. Well I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. The ones who see God are those who are humble and contrite. This is why I said last week that if if I was talking to my daughter, which I have been, about what, it, what is it she should look for in a husband, the number one criteria, I would say, would be a contrite heart. In fact, yesterday I was talking, I said I did a wedding yesterday, and, and um, I was talking with the, uh, the bride's father afterward. And I said, I think your daughter's made a really good choice. And he actually brought up what I had said last week about a contrite heart. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about that. And I I see in him, in his new son-in-law, a contrite heart. Well, that's a really, really good thing to say. You see, and so God is calling us to have a contrite heart in order that we would see him. He reveals himself to those who are faithful unto him. And you see, what I'm praying is this part of Psalm 80. That, Lord, revive us, restore us, make your face to shine upon us. But you see, the prerequisite, the requirement for us seeing the shining glory of the face of God is a pure heart in each one of us. There's hope. I believe there's hope. But it's going to have to be a grand move of the Spirit of God to bring conviction on the church and on the rest of society, to bring us to a place of wanting to see him, wanting to know him. Quite frankly, I don't think the shaking is over. I think because of his great love, he's still working to draw us unto himself, and there may be more ups and downs that will bring us to that place. But the true church should engage and say, Lord, I'm ready, I want to know what you want to do. Now, this week where I want to go is a continuation of that that I've entitled Standing Guard. It's primarily in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have a real Bible, that is one with paper, you could turn there because I'm going to spend most of the time there. But you can go there on your phone if you want to. Just don't get out your phone and play solitaire while I'm talking, okay? We monitor those things. You're on our network, you know. Some people are going, do they really? Do they? Do they? I'm not going to answer the question. But we'll start in Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, to understand this, you've got to understand the context of who Nehemiah was, what time period he lived in, and so forth. You see, remember that the nation of Israel was one at its highest moments under King David and King Solomon. But after Solomon, his descendants couldn't get along very well with each other. And the nation divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And there were really, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 went with the northern kingdom and only two with the southern kingdom. And the nation was divided. Eventually, the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians. Those were people who came from what is today modern-day Iraq or part of modern-day Iraq, overran the northern kingdom, conquered it. The, The ten tribes were scattered. They were referred to as the diaspora, that is, the Jewish people scattered throughout the land. And people even referred to it as the ten lost tribes of Israel because there was so much scattering of the people at that point. Then... Sometime later, the Babylonians came along under King Nebuchadnezzar and attacked the southern kingdom and destroyed it. And this occurred at the ending point in 586 B.C. And this is the point that most people mark the end of the nation of Israel. That Israel did not exist as a nation from that point all the way until uh, it was the point that it was rebuilt in 1947 and 1948. Now, of course, Israel was still there in some form or another. They had gone back and rebuilt, even rebuilt the temple. And then ultimately in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed was the complete ending of the nation of Israel. But you see, the old Israel in 586 was overrun. And so Nehemiah was a person who lived after that time period. And he lived in the Persian Empire because after the Babylonians had conquered Israel, then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And some of you will remember it was King Cyrus, the Persian king, who after he conquered the Babylonians gave favor to the Jews and allowed them to go back to the homeland and start rebuilding. We talked here not long ago about the rebuilding that was done by Zerubbabel and so forth. But in this case, Nehemiah is in the Persian kingdom. He is a cupbearer, which is a very important job in the, in the king's court because what was his job? To taste everything that the king drank to make sure what? That nobody was poisoning the king. So to be a cupbearer meant you had to be very trusted. It also meant that you were putting your life on the line Every time you took a sip. But he would have been a person that the king trusted. Even though he is Jewish by heritage, he's one of the exiles, maybe even born in the Persian kingdom. And so we pick up the story about Nehemiah at this point. It says that one of his brothers had gone to Judah. That is, gone back to Jerusalem, to the homeland. And then he had returned from there to Persia. Persia, by the way, is modern day Iran. So if you think about a map that it was the Assyrians and Babylonians coming out of Iraq and then the Persians coming out of Iran that are all these things that we're talking about here. And it says that his brother came back from Judah and he asked him, what about the Jewish remnant? It's like I was referring to the remnant church earlier where there was a remnant population of Jews who remained in the homeland. And his brother replied that those who had survived the exile, those who had not been carried away or who had made it back were in great trouble. That the wall of Jerusalem was broken down, its gates had been burned with fire and this caused Nehemiah to weep. He said he mourned and fasted and prayed to God thereafter. Now What he's talking about here is where the Babylonians had overrun Jerusalem and they had attacked and destroyed. You know, the wall around Jerusalem was this this massive wall that was made of stone. The gates were heavy wood, and that's what he's talking about. The gates had been burned. They're open. The wall itself had been toppled down in many places. It was ineffective. And a wall in that time period was very, very important. (coughs) In fact, if you think of colonial days in the United States when settlers came here, one of the first things they did was build a what? A fort. Because the fort was the place everybody ran to for protection and where they stored things and so forth. Well, a wall in ancient times was the primary form of protection from attack. That all the ancient cities would build a wall, like the walls around Jericho, things of that nature. And the walls around Nineveh, were considered some of the most magnificent constructions of the time period. They were so thick you could ride chariots on top of them. And this is how they defended. They literally had charioteers on top of the wall around Nineveh to protect it. But even with that, at times they were conquered. But the wall in Jerusalem was in complete disarray. And Nehemiah hears about this. And notice how it penetrates his heart. It causes him to weep. And it says that he mourned and fasted and prayed to God. And when I read this scripture, do you know what I liken it to? Where we are as a nation right now. Now, if you were talking with someone, let us say somebody visiting from another country. Like I was in Ireland earlier this year and The Irish people treat Americans wonderfully. Once they found out I was American, they immediately were very, very nice. Now, how long did it take them to find out I was American? Well, as soon as I opened my mouth, right? But I would guess that their view of America is a little skewed. In other words, they might think of the vast land because Ireland is about the same size as Tennessee geographically. The population of Ireland is about the same as that of Tennessee. In fact, I think Tennessee is slightly larger. But they might think of the vast land and all of the wealth and the great cities of the country and think, wow, what a wonderful place it is. In fact, I would think many Irishmen would would think, if I could just make it to America. And, you know, some of my friends are people who have done just that, who've immigrated from other countries And while recognizing this is not a perfect place, in comparison to what they had seen before, they're like, I'm very happy to be here. Yet, looking at the land of the free and all the prosperity and so forth with human eyes is deceptive. If you have spiritual eyes to see, you realize That the wall is in ruins in this country. That literally, spiritually, we are no different than Israel after the Babylonian conquest. We haven't been conquered by a foreign army that we can see, but really, the wake of destruction from an enemy is enormous. The enemy is spiritual. It's why I said a few weeks ago that people thought when World War II was over, the war was over, but instead it was just beginning because Satan set his target upon this country and he has infiltrated in every aspect of society and gained so much ground and wreaked so much havoc. There is a landscape of destruction. And so really, if you have spiritual eyes to see, your heart should be just like that of Nehemiah, weeping for the land, It grieves me when I encounter especially a young person who is so deceived and so lost and they think that the things of this world are the things to seek after and I did exactly what they're doing so I know exactly how they're thinking and yet it grieves me because I know how hollow and false is that path. That the real path unto life is found in Christ and walking with Him. It's found in holiness. It's found in righteousness. It's found in dying to yourself, not fulfilling every bit of your self-desires. It's found in loving Christ and loving others. And yet so many young people are seeking after life in so many other ways. And see, if you have spiritual eyes to see, you should be exactly like Nehemiah, mourning and fasting for the nation. That's why I'm encouraging you, not just during this 10-day fast period, but to continue to do so. That to humble yourself before the Lord in prayer and fasting to intervene for the nation. So we skip ahead then in the story because it's a pretty long story in the whole book of Nehemiah which was probably, by the way, written by Ezra the priest about Nehemiah. Because what happens is Nehemiah, the cupbearer, one day goes in to see the king, and the king recognizes, that is King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, recognizes that that Nehemiah is downtrodden. He sees it in his countenance. And undoubtedly, the king likes Nehemiah. And he asked him what's wrong. So he explains to him about his homeland, that what he's learned, the report there, and how things are so bad back in in Jerusalem. And to make a long story short, the king so favored Nehemiah that he said to him, go back and I will support you. I'll give you what you need to go back and help rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so it's a unique thing that Nehemiah finds his way to be able to go back to the homeland on behalf of his people. And so we pick up the story here that he's begun repairs and it says that some of the neighbors, Sanballat and the Arabs and the Ammonites and so forth, in other words, the other cities or people groups who live near that area, that they had heard that repairs were going on around the wall at Jerusalem and that the gaps were being closed. That is where it had been torn down, things of that nature. It says they were very angry. They did not want the Israelite people to rebuild because they considered them a threat. And so it says that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. But Nehemiah and the people there prayed to God, and they posted a guard day and night to meet the threats. In other words, they'd heard about what was going on. They'd gotten rumblings, and they made a plan. We're going to continue our work, but we're going to be on guard continuously. And then much of this chapter describes in detail how they went about doing this. It says, Therefore I, that is Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, the parts that had been torn down the most, the place where they were most vulnerable, And he posted them by family. Isn't that interesting? Now, he didn't just organize the military men or something like that. He posted them by family. Why did he do that? Well, partly he knew that a man might fight for his country or for his friends, but he will fight most viciously for his family. At least a godly man will. And so he said, after I looked things over, I turned and I spoke to all the people. He said, "Don't be afraid. remember the Lord who is great and honest awesome, or excuse me, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes." He said, "If we are attacked, you stand firm." in Christ remember he's the one who is with us and remember what you are fighting for well not only were they so prepared it says that the enemies heard that they were aware of this plan to attack Jerusalem and that God had given them the the means and the wisdom to be ready and that they were so frustrated that the attack never came that once they realized the Israelites were prepared for them they didn't want to fight the battle But the point is that Nehemiah was a wise leader. He knew exactly what his mission was because he had a heart for God and a heart for his people. He was busy about leading the people in accomplishing what God had wanted them to do because this is a a task he's completing that's going to have ramifications for decades to come. And he knew that there are times when there are enemies lurking around. In fact, if you think about it, all of us reach points where we must recognize that it is our responsibility to be on guard. Do you realize there is never a time when you can say, "Mm, nope, I don't have any responsibility to be on guard? That there are a lot of things that we must guard, starting with our own hearts, And one of our staff members, Ginger Canty, has created a little short video that I'd like you to watch that is about this subject of guarding your heart.
0: walk through but I also know that the Lord will use our testimony to bring about healing within us and hopefully plant a seed to begin healing in someone else so I wanted to share a little bit about what I've been walking through the last couple of years and what the Lord has been teaching me he recently has brought forth the verse from proverbs 4:23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life." And I've learned that people in our lives and the world around us can be so very reckless, and our heart is the core of our being. He has given it as to show the world who we are, and he teaches us to guard it, to stand guard, to protect ourselves. Our behavior will mirror what is in our hearts. And I know that when I allow lies of other people in whenever I tell myself lies and I'm not seeking God and His will and what He's teaching me, if I allow anger in, if I allow bitterness in, that is, that's is—that's what's gonna come out of me. And that's how I'm gonna walk through this life. And I know that He's, he's called me as a mother to protect my children, to teach my children to be their model to um, guide them and I know that whatever it is that he is bringing forth to me that I need to listen and I pray that I will be wise to move forward in a way where I will not let the world and all of the ugly stuff in it come into my core.
1: Now what Ginger is talking about there is the first point In this whole idea of standing guard. Because in the case of Nehemiah, he had appointed people to stand guard for the nation. But if you're going to be one who is standing guard for others and standing guard for the community and the nation, it starts with standing guard over your own heart. See, we're talking here about having a pure heart. And I see so often... Far too often, many people who are genuinely believers in Christ, who are not guarding their own hearts, who are allowing things into their lives that are clearly not of the Lord, who are living lifestyles that are not of the Lord, and they're doing so because they're lonely or they're thirsting for some relationship or There's just a temptation that's gotten control of their lives. They're doing so because they're after things of this world rather than Christ himself. And so if you and I are going to be people who are standing guard, it starts with standing guard over yourself. You know, I I mentioned over the last couple weeks about like when a dead undertakes anything sinful, has an affair or, or... is involved in porn or anything of that nature, who's, who's got a stronghold of lying, what he's doing is leaving the door open to allow the spirits of evil to attack his own family. That's what King David did. And so he, the problem is, at the first point, he is not standing guard over his own being. And if you want to love other people, it starts with that. You can't be double-minded, scattered... And think that these things over here don't matter. And I can still be a loving person in this way. I must guard my own heart. My own mind. My own soul. And we live in an age that I think is very, very unique. In the sense that there are so many things that bombard your heart and your mind. Just constantly. It is hard to avoid some of the darkness. I I was literally, on YouTube, listening to worship songs. And you know how they'll pop up commercials every once in a while? And some commercial popped up, and it wasn't so terribly bad, but but why they chose the language they chose to promote the product they were promoting, I don't know, but it really disrupted my heart. In other words, I was... Really, I was working and listening to worship music while I was working and it was good for my soul and suddenly there was this thing that just interjected it. And see, we're bombarded with things that attack our minds and our hearts. It is a hard age in which to guard yourself. But God appointed us to live in this age and he is appointing us to live in an age that is of this character and we have to be stronger in it. In fact, I was talking the other day with a medical doctor and I'm not quite sure what led to this conversation but he was talking about a category of people who are just tough. And he said in all of his years as a medical doctor he just saw that older men were just tough. He said they didn't whine and complain and so forth like younger people might. That they'd been through a lot, they'd lived with a lot of pain, and it was a norm for them, they just had grit. And you know, I've thought about that, I think a few generations ago, where people had to work so hard physically all the time, like on the farm, things like that, that they developed a tough physical grit. A lot of us, I don't think, have a tough physical grit but this medical doctor is about the older men they, they, you know they can have all kinds of pain they just eh whatever well in some ways God is calling us to have grit in our spirit and our soul to be tough minded people who are standing against the darkness a lot of stuff might come your way but you stand against it And see, God is calling you to be on guard for your family. Whether you're talking your immediate family, your extended family, if you're a grandparent for multiple generations. And see, if you aren't guarding yourself, by definition, you are not guarding your family. But God is calling us to stand guard for our families. And and I've developed a mindset that not only standing guard for my family, I'm trying to stand guard for others. In other words, where I see a young man, particularly that's the ones I'm focused on most, where I see a young man who does not have an intact family to stand guard for him, I want to stand You should look for people that you can stand in the gap for. Maybe it's coming alongside a, a young man or a young woman and, and saying, I'd like to just help you, guide you, direct you. You know, it, it, you, you will rarely find a young person who will say no to that if you do it with love and kindness. In fact, you don't even have to say, this is what my goal is, what I'm wanting to do. You just have to befriend them in some way. Because you know, I I, I've thought about this a lot. There's a gentleman in this church who told me that when he was playing sports in high school, he had coaches who were Christians. Just a lot of them. He talked about what a huge influence they had on him. And now he's trying to repeat that with others. And I thought back about the coaches I had when I played high school sports. And if any of them were Christians, I don't know. Now, I'm not saying they weren't, but I don't know. Which does say that there was a problem. Because I desperately, see, somebody that I respected like that, a coach, a teacher, if they had really laid out the truth before me, I might have engaged much sooner. But you see, you can stand guard for others in small ways or in large ways. In fact, I thought about this the other day. A few years ago, I like to go to Warriors Pass State Park and run. I go down there a lot, and I run there. And A few years ago, there was this young lady running there, probably in her 20s. I'd see her often, never had a conversation with her other than to say hello or something like that. But this time of year, this happens to me a lot. I get down there, I want to run in the evening, and it gets dark before... I can finish running, and so I end up running in the dark a lot. And a few years ago, I was down there one evening. I think it was even a little bit uh, rainy or something. There were very, very few people in the park. And I was running. It had gotten dark, and I saw this young lady running by herself after dark. Okay? Now, I don't know her name. I don't know anything about her. But she was maybe just a little bit older than my daughter would be. And you know what I did? Without her ever knowing, I just kept an eye on her the whole time. I thought, it's not good for a young lady to be here by herself right now. She may not have thought of it, but I was aware that it was a vulnerable time. So I kept an eye on her. I finished running before she did. So I just sort of meandered over to my car and hung around and just waited until she was done. Never spoke to her, never bothered her in any way. She never knew what was going on. But what I was doing was guarding over her without her knowing it. And you see, I hope there are men guarding. In fact, I know from time to time there have been situations where there have been men guarding over my daughter because they were godly men just watching out for her in some context. And see, God's calling you and I to be guards over ourselves, over our families, over our communities, over every person that God puts in your path and over your church. Now when I say over the church, I don't mean celebration church and I don't mean the institutional church. You know, every time I use the word church, I think many people, their minds are so conditioned to think wrongly because I'm always talking about the body of true believers scattered throughout the world. That's the church. The church is not an organization. It's not a building. It's not some leadership. It's all the true believers. And we have a responsibility to guard over other believers. This is why the the church has a responsibility to the widows and to the orphans, to the weaker, to look out for them. My, uh, my mother's father died when she was in the eighth grade, and she was an only child. She was an only child because her mother had, had many miscarriages. And so imagine, now her mother worked as a teacher, but imagine, this is quite, quite a many, many years ago, as an eighth grader, suddenly it's just you and your mom. And I've heard stories over the years of how people in that community always looked out for them provided food for them, took care of them, watched over them. See, that was other believers guarding over the church. And see, you and I have a responsibility for doing so. Now, herein lies part of the problem. The church should be the one guarding over truth, guarding over morality, guarding over how to live. Do you realize when we meet together and talk on the weekends, we're talking about how to live? That's what it's about how to live. And the church should be the one guarding over this whole model, giving direction to society about how to live. And this is where the church has failed. That's why I say the church has failed to pass on the mantle of the gospel of Christ to succeeding generations in recent times because we have failed to teach young people how to live a godly life in the world in which we find ourselves. But you and I have a responsibility to stand guard. And we have a responsibility to stand guard for our community, our nation. See, it's a critical juncture. Now, there's some people who have been a part of this church who this day are physically standing guard over the nation. Like some of you know Evan Sherrod or Nathaniel Easley. These are young men or uh, Josie Rogers. They're all in the Navy right now serving, standing physical guard over the nation. But you realize that you and I are standing guard continuously. Go back to the story of Nehemiah there, rebuilding the walls. He had everybody constantly standing guard. See, in fact, if I jump over to that scripture in Nehemiah, it says this. That from that point on, that is the point that they felt threatened. That half of the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. That those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. That the builders held, had swords at their sides at all times. He said, we continue to do the work with half the men holding their spears from dawn until, until dark that constantly they were on guard. And see, you and I need to have this sense that constantly you and I are on guard for the nation, for the church, for our family, for ourselves. That scripture goes on to say, he said that they he told them to have every man and his helper to stay inside the city at night, not go back out to where their homes might have been in the countryside, and to serve as guards day and night He even says that they they didn't even prepare to sleep by taking off their clothes, that they were constantly ready prepared. Didn't even take a break and go to get water without their weapon with them. You know, I've known of stories, sadly, of Christian people who let down their guard, made one or a few bad decisions that had lifelong ramifications. There is never a moment when you can let down your guard. Never one. And you see, you and I need to recognize that at this juncture, you and I are called to stand guard for the nation. Now, you may not be able to join the Navy, but do you realize that our prayers are of utmost importance right now? We looked at a scripture a few weeks ago that says that there are golden bowls of incense before the throne of God, and they contain in them the prayers of the saints. That every time we are interceding for a person or for our community, whatever it might be, we are standing guard for the nation. This is why. Remember, Nehemiah he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed unto God, and God answered his prayers. And, you know, we, we did a whole series about praying. It's not about manipulating God. It's about humbling yourself before him and hearing from him. In fact, I, I've, tried to, I've, I've said that I've tried to push out the noise of the world more in the last six months than any time in recent years and try to hear more from God. And it's interesting. The more I've done that, the more what I hear from God is the opposite of what the world is saying. You see, it is a time for the church to arise. It is a time for the church to repent, to purify our hearts, stop retreating, stand, and stand guard over the nation. Stand guard over our communities. You know, I am thankful where we are blessed to live. Not only is it a beautiful place, but there is a spiritual health here that is better than many parts of the world in fact uh, oh it was a few years ago on thanksgiving most of the communities around here have these uh, 5k running races early on thanksgiving day so you can then go and gorge yourself in the afternoon and not feel so guilty about it Uh, but like they have one over in johnson city i think it's called the turkey trot and they have one out at medivue here and and i I went and i ran in the one at medivue and I was talking with a friend who had a visitor from out of town. You know, a lot of people who come and run of those are out of town guests, family members, things like that. And at the start of that race, the guy who oversees it, who runs Fleet Feet down here in Kingsport, he prayed and he, he just gave thanks to God for the beautiful morning that it was and so forth. And so this gentleman I was talking with who had an out of town guest, I think he was from New York, was just shocked that there was a Public prayer. I mean, it just shocked him. And we we're like pretty normal. And you see, you and I should be thankful for the area that we live in, but we need to continue to stand not only for here but for the entire nation. I'm praying that the the calamities, the disasters that could come, would be avoided because there be repentance. You know, this is why I've said it. it's just like right before the American Civil War. If there had been mass repentance, I believe the war could have been avoided. But there wasn't. We're at that juncture. Which way will we turn? It's up to you and I to stand guard for the nation. In fact, my prayer is this. I pray that the Spirit of the Lord would penetrate your heart in the same way Nehemiah was penetrated. That he was grieved. That he was mourning. That he was brought to a place of weeping and fasting for the nation. Let it be so among us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the people here who are a part of your remnant church, who are seeking you, who love you. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. In fact, I want to say something to you. A few of you will remember this. A few years ago, we had a women's conference here. This place was packed. <clears throat> one of the fullest events I've ever seen here. <clears throat> it was the one where the, the water system shut down because we were draining the water too fast and it couldn't keep up with the supply in the bathrooms. And we That's not a good thing to shut down the bathrooms at a women's conference, but it happened. But it was packed here. And uh, Lee Sexton had put that together. And of course she had great speakers. Um, and I told her when she was planning this, I said, I think the Lord wants me to speak. And she told me later she wasn't real thrilled about that. She's like, she had this women's conference. She had all these lady speakers. And here the pastor wants to come and take up too much time. And, and But I, said, I told her, I said, the Lord wants me to speak. And it was one of those things where I, I was just thinking about her conference, something like that. And boom, there it was. I knew the Lord wanted me to say something. in it, And so she said, well, all right, but you've only got this much time. Which she knew that if she gave me five minutes, I'd take 10, you know. But this is what I did because the Lord put this on my heart. I remember coming and I said, ladies, I know that many of you have been wounded by men. Some of you have been wounded by your fathers, some by your husbands or ex-husbands, some by boyfriends, others. I just know that many of you have been wounded. And I said, on behalf of every man who's ever wounded you, I ask for your forgiveness. That's what the Lord had put on my heart, was to ask for forgiveness on behalf of every man. And of course, gentlemen, we all know, if we're honest, we've wounded a lot of people. Whether it's with our words or our actions. And I think the Lord reminded me of that just now as I was praying. Because particularly to the young people here, on behalf of the church... I ask you to forgive us for failing to be the true church and passing the mantle on to you the way it should be. See, I I, I pray that God will raise up young people, a young generation with a fire for God that the true church would arise. That we would stand, like like Nehemiah, the scripture that says, stand for your your wives and your daughters and your sons and your homes. That we would stand for the generations to come. So, Lord, I ask you to forgive us for failing you and failing the generations who have suffered as a consequence Lord, I ask that you would work a new move of your spirit in your church, that we would truly honor you and serve you. And I pray this in Jesus' name,
0: amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him.